0: Hi, I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, and goodness, yes, it's Friday, which means it's the day for The Jackpot, where on point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings his unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack.
1: Hello, Meghna.
0: Okay, we've reached episode 14, your headline for today.
1: They want revenge. Oh dear, who's
0: the they, and what revenge do they want?
1: Well, it's that is actually a quotation from Frank Luntz, and he's reporting on a focus group of Trump supporters in 2015, uh, even before he was elected president. Uh, here's another quote: "They want revenge." This is from a economist writing a paper uh, called uh, "Reaganomics" as a as a watershed in the development of Trumpism, and he he there talks about how the explosion in inequality that uh, you know, Reaganism both caused and sort of paralleled created tremendous resentment. And he said they, that is, uh, many Americans, <laughs> want revenge for that. And 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 you know his rhetoric since. Uh, whether he's on a, his whole campaign now is revenge. That's the theme of the campaign. He announced it in March, uh, and I think what's happened is that the policy um, elaborations of this theme have, as it were, leaked away increasingly, and now we just have revenge. Mm. We don't we don't have we're not talking about the wall so much. We're not. It's revenge. Right. And 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 it has caught on. Ninety-five percent, according to a CBS poll of of Republican voters, says he fights for people like me, and he's tapping into something that um, pollsters have noticed that that the the, the theme of retribution is is something that voters are identifying Mm. with.
0: Well, Jack, you mentioned uh, Trump's March re-election campaign announcement. Well, here he is. This is a moment from that announcement where you hear the exact language uh, of retribution coming from Donald Trump.
1: In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed... I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen.
0: Donald Trump in March. Here's another example from just this week. This is Reverend Joel Tenney of Tiffin, Iowa. He led the crowd in a prayer at a Trump rally in Coralville, Iowa. He called the 2024 election a quote, spiritual battle.
2: The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, and judgment is coming. And when Donald Trump Trump becomes the 47th president of the United States, there will be retribution against all those who have promoted evil in this country.
0: Okay, Jack, still not... Obviously, retribution has to come because of some perceived, uh, not just slight, but uh, crime or loss. I want to talk to you in a minute about what it, you know. What is the source of the need for retribution in the minds of many of these voters? But I'm also just curious about where this comes from. I mean, I don't think Donald Trump is the first to sort of, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, have his finger on this particular pulse in America.
1: No, and, uh, and, and this is brought out well by a prophetic uh, paper from 1975 by the pollster and really the um, social scientist, Daniel Jankilovich. The, uh, the title of the paper is The Status of Ressentiment in America, a French word, Nietzsche used it a good deal. It means the effectively charged desire for revenge that arises in response to a a perceived injury as you were just saying and a reassignment of that pain to an external uh, scapegoat. It's a a complicated political emotion that differs from resentment uh, in its its almost public character. Yankelovich, in this pa- in this paper, uh, he, he he says resentment is the pool of psychic energy created by frustration and available for a politics of anger, retribution, destruction, and demagoguery. This is 1975. Mm-hmm. He looks back on the 60s and he says, you know, there was a, a crisis in authority. Uh, The Vietnam War permanently lowered faith in government. Watergate reinforced that. The alienation from politics of young people, especially radical young people, was almost unexampled since the 1930s. Uh, And what he notices in the 70s is that these, uh, what were almost sort of marginal emotions about the government and so on, deep distrust of it, um, not believing in, you know, that the system works was creeping into the, as it were, American mainstream, and uh, and he was he was worried that uh, that that it might go actually and find a home there and grow, and that this feeling uh, ressentiment may might just be starting there. And he said, you know, this is something to fear because he looked at examples in history of this emotion, French, the, French, the terror in the French Revolution, the, the, you know, the, the outpouring of demonstrations and, and, and uh, violence in the Weimar Republic, on and on. He cited drastic moments when, when this became a mass politics. He said, now, right now, things look pretty good uh, after all. George Wallace did not catch on. He hasn't grown in the polls since uh, the 60s. He, his, his, his support has been frozen, uh, and he was all about uh, revenge and, and racism. So that was encouraging, and he said uh, people's personal well-being in 1975 was high enough that uh, even though they had these public emotions that were the raw material of this politics of revenge um it hadn't crept into their to their psyches mm. it was like almost performative well God that Nixon oh boy Vietnam but boy I'm I'm having a good time and he feared that um, that these if if people began to feel in their private lives the disenchantment and the alienation they were professing that he very much feared for the American uh, uh, experiment of democracy. Mm. Well, what happened in the decades since to make uh, his fears seem to come true? We, we can't go through all of it, but we mentioned Reaganomics, and the, the idea that that really uh, you know, uh, furthered um, inequality, and then into the, the 90s, and the, the sort of neoliberalism of, of Bill Clinton, we had a new source of uh, of, ineq- of inequality, the openness to hyperglobalization the trade deals the and then and then the uh, the deregulation of wall street all of which seemed to put american the american middle class under a new kind of strain mm-hmm. and and a sense that that they had that that they were the the, the sense of injury that is so that is so central to the politics of revenge, the the injury was growing. I mean, one estimate of the China trade deal was it, you know, it displaced 3 million American jobs over 15 years. NAFTA, uh, not so many, but crucially located in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, places that Trump would carry.
0: Hmm. You know, Jack, uh, let's imagine this devolution, as you've so aptly described it, of grievance into resentment, into the yearning for revenge. If we imagine it as this, you know, very vitriolic weed growing in the the garden of American politics, that weed can be trimmed back. It can be pulled out by the roots uh, as many times as you want. But weeds come back unless some fundamentals in the soil Are changed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you've also described some of those fundamentals that that are in need of change. But what I wonder is if those changes are not going to come as far as I can tell currently from the Republican Party as it is. But do you think the Democratic Party uh, realizes that as well? That instead of talking about some of the, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, socially popular um aspects of of America that they've been discussing and they they're not unimportant i have to say the questions of civil rights of individual americans is still of paramount importance but do they talk enough about the kinds of uh of things that gave rise to this grievance in the in the hearts and minds of trump voters do they do they talk about those things enough
1: no i mean they have um you know the politics of remedy is has been in a losing uh, race against the politics of revenge. The remedy would say, "Well, it was it was there." to be fair, in the uh, in the uh, ER, the sort of primary Biden program, there was bill back stronger, bill back better. There was going to be day, you know, subsidized daycare, family leave, student loan debt. All these and more—all these um, efforts to remedy uh, perceived um, injustices and unfairnesses and grievances—and one can imagine that if some of that, if that program had been, uh, you know, adopted as as it was presented, uh, a, there, there might have been a, a reduction in this feeling on the part of of Republican voters. It would have been at the margins, but it might have been real. Uh, Instead, uh, the Biden program, solid as it is, the infrastructure and all the rest, it it hasn't spoken to these more profound sources of insecurity that that, that, Marxists would say arise from, Late capitalism and and arise all over the world. I mean, uh, there's a there's a there's a new study that says over the past six years, the number of countries moving toward authoritarianism is more than double mm. the number moving toward democracies. Most recently, the Netherlands, Argentina. Wherever you look, you find common uh, manifestations of electorates feeling. The, the, we've got to do something drastic. We may need a strong man to clear out the dross and begin again. Hmm. So then
0: what's the antidote or, or what, what can be done to diffuse the power
1: of this thirst for revenge? I, I really don't know. I mean, a successful politics of remedy could. An emphasis on in all rhetoric on security. And, and less inequality. I think a, a very astute writer in the, in the New Yorker noticed, when we talk about inequality, we're looking up and down. When we talk about insecurity, we're looking parallel. We're looking to the side. We're, everybody, at some level, feels insecure. You know, when Daniel Yankelovich was fearing that this European uh, Nietzschean idea of resentment was coming to America, Uh, In those days, uh, they were defined benefit pensions, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That was a form of security that everybody took for granted. That's gone, and that's emblematic of so much else that has gone that has exposed Americans directly to the unmediated force of, uh, well, what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, the cycle of uh, the churning restless churning of capitalism and and the, the means by which it, it grows. Hearing what you just said, it brings to mind
0: one of, I think still, the 20th century's greatest writers, George Orwell. You know, I've talked about him a lot. Um, and uh, his book, The Road to Wigan Pier, which is actually my favorite Orwell book that I've ever read. I mean, you know that book well, but for folks who haven't mm-hmm. haven't read it, it's uh, George Orwell's basically uh, sort of true account of the experiences that he had trying to live as a, a coal miner in Wigan in, um, in the UK and the realities of how awful the lives for coal miners and their families were. And the best chapter, I think, in that book comes at the very end where um, – Orwell actually takes quite a few pages to hold the as he put it the British bourgeoisie to task not for being bourgeois but for being of the you know the bourgeoisie of the left who who say they seek the total elimination of the British class system Okay, mm-hmm. and he accuses those uh, those sort of affluent uh, leftists of the 1930s in the UK of of not really meaning what they say, and also trying to move too quickly, and therefore not mm-hmm. taking seriously what the concerns of their fellow bourgeois who are on the who were on the right in the UK. And I just want to read a little bit of that last oh, sure. uh, chapter to you. So first of all, he says. The only sensible procedure is to go slow and not force the pace. Essentially, the, the pace of change regarding the, the tearing down of the British class system. Um, and he here he then he goes on to say why you have to drop your snobbishness, but it is fatal to pretend to drop it before you are really ready to do so. And he says if you move too quickly, there are many many people in the UK uh, amongst the bourgeois who may react like this. He says, they might think perhaps it means a bleak world in which all our ideals, our codes, our tastes, our ideology, in fact, will have no meaning. Perhaps this class-breaking business isn't so simple as it looked. On the contrary, it is a wild ride into the darkness, and it may be that at the end of it, the smile will be on the face of the tiger. With Loving, though slightly patronizing smiles, we set out to greet our proletarian brothers. And behold, our proletarian brothers, insofar as we understand them, are not asking for our greeting. They're asking us to commit suicide. And then, Orwell adds, he complete, concludes with this. When the bourgeois see it in that form, he takes to flight. And if his flight is rapid enough, it may carry him to fascism. Ooh. So yeah. I offer you that, Jack, as perhaps another explanation as to why this fervent embrace of revenge seems to be uh, a theme that Trump is going to you know, pound at through this election season, because we've talked a lot about how things are moving quickly in the minds of uh, many Trump voters, too quickly for their taste. But Orwell is saying, maybe we ought to slow down a little somehow. I don't know exactly how. Because if things do change too quickly in the minds of these people, you know, as you said in a couple of podcasts ago, then they run to fascism.
1: Oh, boy, that's a powerful passage. And anybody on the left who hears that has to take that to heart. And uh, that's an example of what I said I try to resist, Mm -hmm. jumping over the wall of empathy. He clearly has no great regard for the men in the bowler hats walking along the, you know, in the city of London. But he's saying, "Look, just as a practical matter, uh, you can't put these people against the wall, and you can't, you canting <laughs> uh, English Marxist, uh, pretend that you know you can have a revolution tomorrow without it provoking a reaction. And I think one of the things that has happened here, and and we have seen it, where people, uh, are asked, what do they think of the changes in America since the 1950s? Strongly, Republicans are are, in, are 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 doubtful about them. And often, those are cultural matters that just simply seem to offend their idea of what the country should be. And let's face it, too, they're also racial mm-hmm, matters. Mm-hmm. The, the view that we like things the way they were back then because we didn't have to worry about... Uh, competition from uh, African Americans or and, and Eisenhower had cleared out the you know the Mexican immigrants with uh, his uh, deportation policies things were pretty good we were on top of the totem pole and I think what happens sort of on, on the sort of the leftist part of the liberal spectrum is that there's all they're always calling for the, for maximalism right You know, uh, let's not just have equality, let's have equity, which seems to mean something that favors uh, disfavored groups, even that word, disfavored groups. Uh, And, you know, the kinds of things on college campuses. People now say there are two standards. There's a standard for Jewish American students, and there's another standard for African American and other students who might be offended by speech that does not go into conduct. Uh, and we have to be very careful about that. That's these cultural signals of sort of maximal progressivism, I think, have had the effect that Orwell is talking about. Mm. It really has put off uh, that group of Americans who are not, you know, just just wound up with revenge, but might even be um, you know, if they hear something reasonable, might be willing to resonate to it. Uh, and uh, and they just can't you know i from that book what i remember is all well working in the mine and how the the heat the hot uh, roof that he had to of the mine shaft was scalding his his vertebra the, mm. <laughs> the the bones the little bumps on his spine and that's just how deep some of these injuries in those mm. days were the class injuries physical and, and, and emotional for uh, working people and uh, attitudinal and cultural, but no less real for the threatened bourgeoisie who, you know, would pick up the latest uh, offering from the Left Book Club and say, oh my God, this professor wants rev- revolution.
0: Yeah. You know, Jack... Uh, one of the greatest pleasures in doing this podcast with you is we get to discuss the the greatest minds and writers, uh, all across human history. Because I, I know we could go on and on and on, but I just want to say one last thing. Because you're exactly right. You you replace the word class with race to uh, from Orwell's analysis to the United States today. We absolutely have to do that. But then you know Orwell saying go slow, go slow. But then I think of. Dr. Martin Luther King, right, writing his letter Mm -hmm. from Birmingham jail in little scraps of paper and sending them under the bars and so eloquently saying, you know, you um, you supposed white supporters of the cause of, uh, uh, of civil rights, you keep telling us to wait. And he's writing this from jail, right? How long can mm. we wait? So, mm. oh, okay, mm. now I'm turning the podcast into a different topic, Jack. So I'm sorry, but uh, you give me the great joy of being able to bring these bring these things up. So let's wrap up today's analysis of revenge uh, right now. And as always, we do want to hear what responses you, listeners and fans of the JackPod, have. So when you think about... Donald Trump speaking explicitly, as we heard earlier, about his candid- candidacy being one of revenge. What's your response to that? And do you have any ideas of how to sort of disempower that urge to revenge in American politics? So do it on the Vox Pop app, On Point Vox Pop. If you don't already have the app, go to wherever you get them and look for On Point Vox Pop. So that's the feedback we're looking for from you for this week's podcast. And as always, we listen to every single one of them, and we got a whole bunch from regarding last week's show, so when we come right back, we'll hear what you had to say. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. Okay, well, we're back, and Jack, last week, remind us what the headline of your podcast from last week was.
1: Well, we were talking about uh, persuasion mm-hmm. and how uh, campaigns now are all about the base, and no one is. There's no effort to persuade the middle because the the data seems to suggest it's a it's too small.
0: Right. Yeah, the persuadables are too small. But then you also said more broadly that um, even the art or the necessity of political persuasion uh, seems to have gone by the wayside, right, overall in American politics. So tons of responses. They tended to fall into a few specific categories. and. A good man named John called us from Upton, Massachusetts, and he very nicely summarized those categories and also added that he thought there were some things missing from our analysis last week.
1: I am a Vietnam-era and Desert Storm-era veteran. I'm 69 years old and a retiree, and I'm a political centrist. I believe that Jack makes good points about the lack of persuasion
2: on the part of politicians, but that's just one piece of the puzzle.
1: Modern technology in the form of cell phones, websites, social media, and round-the-clock TV news is grinding us all down mentally. The Fourth Estate, our press and news media,
2: whose role traditionally was to keep politicians honest, has largely abdicated
1: that role in its blind pursuit of viewers' attention, uh, leading to generate ad revenue.
0: You know, Jack, uh, social media is something that a lot of people called in about. But what do you think of what uh,
1: John had to say? I think he's describing a phenomenon that we all uh, that exasperates us all—the the sense that this is a cacophony, a constant, you know, the cable television, the, the the MSNBC on the one hand and CNN and Fox on the other. But he says uh, that they're failing to keep the politicians honest. I take an objection to that. I think there are two medias. There is Fox, etc., where Any uh, discrepant information that uh, would complicate uh, a person's fealty to Donald Trump just isn't mentioned, and everything that can exacerbate the feeling of revenge is played up. So they essentially suppress uh, things or ignore things that would uh, be critical of their person, and and, and just do the opposite. Whereas there is a press and a media that keeps Democrats honest. They have to answer to the New York Times, to the uh, Washington Post, to the reporting on CNN, to, you know, whether it's the Bob Menendez scandal or Hunter Biden's problems or the president's age or whatever it is, it is not pa- absent from the uh, real press. So there are two medias. There's the media that is just the echo chamber for Trumpism, and then there is the other media that holds the feet of all politicians to the fire.
0: Okay. Well, moving on to Jim. He called us from Walnut, California. And Jack, he actually wanted to challenge you on a couple of things, including your definition of rhetoric.
2: Jack mentioned that to get away from rhetoric. But actually, that's my master's degree. And rhetoric, the way we look at it, is the art of persuasion. So it is the essence of what you're talking about. And I think you were referring to it as the negative side, which is it's all a bunch of fluff, but it actually has ethos, logos, and pathos. By the way, another thing is when Ross Perot gives data Data, is lo- it's logical, logos, but that doesn't mean the data 100% proves that the deficit is bad. I think Jack mentioned it, it doesn't sound right that throwing out data is actually pure, accurate reasoning. Um, no, it depends on how you interpret the data.
0: Jack, we are modeling civil discourse here, so what's your response to Jim?
1: I think he's got me dead to write, oh, so that okay. was a, <laughs> I don't mean for a minute to, to derogate rhetoric. Uh, uh, and it, 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 and he's absolutely right. It's all about persuasion. I guess what I was trying to point out was that Perot in his bare bones, non-speechifying, maybe that's what I meant, non-speechifying, <laughs> just bare bones presentation was convincing people that this was a problem. Now, he didn't and 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 Jim is absolutely right. He really didn't say what we needed to do about it. He mm. didn't say we need to raise taxes, cut spending. So he is absolutely right. it was it was data in search of some rhetoric, if you will. <laughs> and I was merely pointing out that, you know, it 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 kind of succeeded in, well, it persuaded one American, as I say, Bill Clinton, that there were voters on that Perot side, and by God, he was going to get them by balancing the budget and, and doing the kinds of things that Perot didn't talk about but were implicit in his uh, condemnation of the deficit. But, but I, I, I just meant a resistance. There was the bare bones. You know, <laughs> here's a chart. I'm not talking about the... I'm not, no speechifying. I guess that's what I meant. No politician talk. But he, but Jim is very right that rhetoric is is the art of argument and of persuasion. Okay,
0: so here I mean we got a lot of very um, expert listeners <laughs> to the podcast, Jack. Because now we have Monica. She's a retired English professor in Moorpark, California, and uh, she taught freshman composition uh, at uh, the uh, university she used to work at. And she told us about an assignment that she gave her students every single year. They had to write a persuasive essay, but it had to do, the essay had to do much more than just advance opinions affirming the student's own point of view.
2: They also had to be sure that the counter arguments were also well supported and part of their job was to find the weaknesses, not a straw man weakness, no, but something viable, something that allowed meaningful discussion. And there were times when they would come back to me and say, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't find any strong counter arguments. And I would tell them, well, then you need to reconsider your topic because it has to be something that allows for meaningful discussion.
0: And her students would do that. And Monica uh, added that she thinks that the students, her students, took that experience of having to address uh, respectfully counter arguments And it applied to the rest of their lives.
2: Now, at this time of my life, I do see that so many folk around us haven't necessarily had that exercise, or at least not recently. And I really appreciate the quote that Jack shared with us this week regarding the importance of recognizing strong counter-arguments. It keeps all of us on our toes.
0: Now, Jack, Monica made me wonder about, you know, not just is this is this uh, sort of education in considering counter arguments? is that just gone not just from sort of a university or college experience and I'm not even talking about in k through twelve education but just as a part of uh, how, what american dialogue
1: is right it's 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 just been lost from the culture as a whole i think I think that's right uh and I'm gonna to get to that, but first, let me just give a, a short version of that quotation from John Stuart Mill <laughs> that, uh, that uh, <clears throat> Monica referenced. He says, he says, Lord, enlighten thou our enemies. If opponents of the important truths do not exist, it is indispensable to imagine them and supply them with the strongest argument which the most skillful devil's advocate can conjure up. Mill's idea was, otherwise, the truth won't emerge. It, unless there's a, a, a genuine contestation of ideas, uh, you won't, truth will not emerge out of the struggle. There'll be a kind of a faux truth, a sort of fake argument, and the result will be, if it's policy, policy that fails. But to return to our current position, I think one of the things that's happened and that makes this counter-argument very difficult is the Republicans have abandoned argument. Mm. You know, they've abandoned policy. You know, suppose it's an issue about raising the minimum wage. Well, th- let's hear the argument. That isn't on. They don't argue about... There is an argument against raising it. It's very powerful. We don't hear it because they don't make it. It's There's no... Ar- This has been the the two years of this Congress, and of course, I don't mean to make it such a short-range example, but have been the least productive, I think, in the twenty for a long, long time. They've named a few post offices. They've done. They haven't done anything else. They don't care about policy. They have given up on policy, and therefore on argument. There's no argument. It's all. Uh, base all the time, and its effect on the Democrats is reciprocal. You know they want to do policy, but in the absence of it, they have to keep you know throwing red meat to the base and and uh, and and stirring up progressive uh, angst about uh, Republican do nothingism.
0: Mm, okay, well Jack, we've got one more from the uh, comment bag, if I can call it that. There's John from Camden, Maine, who had what I think, the single best remedy for American politics ever.
1: You know who should be running the country? Mothers. They are extremely good at time management skills. They are the epitome of compromisers. And they are excellent listeners. Far better than many men I know.
0: Well, we're going to wrap up today. And as I mentioned earlier, you can definitely send us your thoughts over the Vox Pop app about uh, Jack's analysis on the thirst for revenge in American politics. But I also want to say that next week is the last Jackpot of 2023. So we're going to do a little something different. We want you, dear Jackpot listeners, to send us your questions or thoughts whatever they might be, for Jack to respond to. And essentially, we'll have a a mailbag show to close out the year. So, you know, any questions from, Jack, have you read every book ever published? <laughs> <laughs> Jack, do you have a photographic memory? Or no. perhaps more seriously, Jack, you know, what do you think about... Can uh, an betterment of the economy overall help tackle some of the problems we've talked about in the podcast? Whatever, whatever's on your mind, uh, we'll pick the best of them and have Jack respond to them. So do that through the On Point Box Pop app once again. All right, that's it for episode 14 of the Pod. Jack, thank you as always.
1: Thank you so much. This is On Point.